This is the Design Goggles podcast on BNV Radio. Checking out architecture and design is a pretty good way to keep track of how the world changes. Designers have a unique way of looking at cities, and Seattle is a city that's changing fast. More people are moving here every day, and understanding what's different and what's next has never been more important. So, put on your design goggles and join us in checking out the view. I'm Charles. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Central District neighborhood, and I've been a Seattleite for two years. And I'm Rachel. I'm a designer here at Borden Vellum. I live in the Old Ballard neighborhood, and I grew up here in Seattle. This week's show is titled Northwestern Hospitality. If there's something we talk about a lot in the Pacific Northwest, it's the weather. We're known for beautiful summers, gray, rainy winters, and depending on who you talk to, Seattleites' moods swing with the forecast. There's nothing that affects us more here than the great outdoors. With a bunch of new people coming from all over the country, especially from drastically different climates, there are some different personalities in the mix now. What does that mean for design in the future of Seattle's outdoor spaces? Could we be bringing more of the outdoors inside in the future to lift the spirits of Seattleites, both old and new? Is the addition of outdoor elements to interior design something that Seattle has been craving or a monument to excess? To help us answer that question and more, we are joined by Zach Thomas, a landscape architect here at Borden Vellum. Zach, thank you very much for coming on. Great to be here. So how long have uh, you been in Seattle and what neighborhood do you live in here? We moved here in 2003. So what's that? 14 years now. Yeah. And we're in Fremont. So we kind of came here. Actually, my wife found our house on what we didn't know what it was at the time, but it was Craigslist. It was like pre-Craigslist? <laughs> it was like the first time I ever saw Craigslist. And we got our house off of it. And it looks identical today. Uh, Craigslist well, doesn't. It's just slightly better. Yeah. Did you go directly to Fremont and just that was it? You stayed in Fremont? Uh, we looked around. So we wanted to, I've always wanted to live close into the city. I would gladly live closer. in. So we actually looked at some condos. But we had two dogs, and it was just not possible to find a place to do that with dogs. So we had to get a house, and um, well, it turned out that Craigslist provided that for us. But we looked at North Seattle. We kind of looked at West Seattle, but it's so hard to get there. It takes forever. And I grew up in a small town, and West Seattle is a little bit its own city over there, and I kind of wanted to be closer to the action. So you picked the center of the universe. <laughs> yeah, but we're um, we're actually at the edge of Fremont and, and Ballard, so... Turns out that Fremont was its own city at one time, right? Ballard was its own city at one time. And then between 3rd and 8th, so Fremont claimed, apparently, to 8th, and Ballard claimed to 3rd. And so that was the no-man's-land territory. Oh, I didn't so know that. And so neither of them would build sidewalks there, for example, apparently in the past. And so that was kind of, so we're right at the edge of that. So I always thought that we're at the edge of the universe. <laughs> right. Which is so much the edge more, of the center. Well, but it's so much more interesting, right? Because time and space are made at the edge of the universe. Yeah, oh, it's yeah, very See, way better. Hmm? Yeah, yeah. How is it different today? Housing prices obviously are just sure. drastically different for anybody who's trying to ever live anywhere near to Seattle. It's almost impossible anymore. But it's to my mind, it's better. Uh, it's it's there's more people there. When we moved there, I would say generally everyone was older especially in my little neighborhood, there was definitely remnants of the old sort of working Seattle. And since that time, a lot of younger people have moved in. They're definitely like our house actually was was legally duplex. Well, legally, but back in the day before there were any rules, the owner of our house duplexed it and got two power meters. So we were grandfathered in. Our house is duplex. Oh, nice. but it's also the smallest house on our block. But every other house in our block has now been chopped into multiple units illegally. And there's all these young people living there. And I'm a huge fan of it. I mean, 
it's gotten harder to park, but that's again, that's the trade-off that you make. Oh, do I want to live in some boring, sleepy place where nothing happens? Or would I rather in, live in a place where there's some vitality and action? I mean, when we moved there, uh, Mr. Bill's is a local establishment, this little convenience store. I don't, do you know that place? Yeah. So it was called Mr. Bill's after the Mr. Bill's character from Saturday Night Live. Oh, like the clay, the claymation yeah. dude that they would destroy? That they, they would destroy. So there was Mr. Bill's food store, and he had this mural on the wall about all the big people beating down on the little man, and this it was this whole narrative. So it was this huge establishment. It was the only place that you could get anything anywhere nearby. And so you could get cheap beer, and you could get off-brand cigarettes. So that was like, that was the store, right? And it served the neighborhood well, right? That was the neighborhood, right? And right across the street was a park, and you could get drugs there. So that was going on. <laughs> And since then, you know, they've rebuilt the park. Mr. Bills has upscaled uh, a pizza place has come in. Now it's just like, again, like you get more people and there's more activity and you get more stuff. You get more coffee shops. You get more. And then the whole tap room scene has taken off down there at the bottom of the hill. And it's like, wow, what a great place to live. I mean, I was happy with it before, but I'm way happier now. That's awesome. Now, how is it different from where you, you came from? A suburban neighborhood in the exurbs of a small town in Georgia. It's like kind of a night and day kind of scenario there. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up in Athens, Georgia, and it was a great place to grow up as a small town because there was a music scene and there was action going on there. And um, it was a little bit of um, it was a little bit of uh, it, it warps your perspective on what it's like to grow up in a small town if you grew up there, because it wasn't that bad. Actually, it was kind of fun. My older brother went to the University of Georgia. He's two years older than me. He had all these friends in the music scene. So when I was about 16, I just started hanging out with that scene. And so I was like going to clubs and we were going to music and we were doing, you know, and just like the parties didn't start till like maybe 1.30 in the morning and we'd be out till four in the morning and it was great. Mm -hmm. And then you move to another place, like I went to college in Portland and um, you meet people from other small towns. You're like, oh, <laughs> right. Not as good. <laughs> Would you, do you think of the town you grew up in as being... Obviously, it is in the south, but is it southern? Oh, yeah, all the way. Well, southern? Oh, all the way. It's it's um, like many small college towns in that part of the world. It's this like submarine where people get on there because they're like, oh, here we are. These only this group of people who are a little bit different from everyone else. And and anything that makes you different collects you together in that environment. Where you get to see like Seattle and people who start to segregate by the these tiny micro uh, whatever it is that you, you know, you have to kind of choose a thing, you a group to identify with because you have so many choices. In a small town in the south or in the middle of the country, you just have no choices. And so whoever's there, oh, there's that hippie person. Oh, there's that goth person. Oh, there's the emo. Whatever it is, everybody's together now. We're Now we're all hanging out together because there's not enough of us to form a larger group and break into pieces. So there you go. But it was, it was interesting in the sense that, like, um, I worked on a campaign for the mayor. And I was out walking the streets with the candidate for the mayor, right? So it's like you also have that kind of contact with people that you you know everybody. Or there was a bar called the Manhattan. And, um, you know, for a while there after we moved here, I would go back to Athens and we just go to the bar and we'd run into somebody that we knew. So it's like you just show up in a town and you just go to this bar and you're just guaranteed that you will run into at least one person, usually four or five people you know, and you wind up hanging out with them all night. And that I really miss. That part of it. Is that the hardest part? Was it, was it one of the hardest parts of adapting to coming here? Uh, right. Good question. Uh, you know, I think the hardest part of coming to Seattle was like that Seattle freeze aspect, right? That you come here and, and you try to hang out with people and they're like, oh, Thursday night. Um, well, we're having dinner with some friends that we've had dinner with since high school. And you're like, 
Wow, because that's fun always, you know, to like hang out with the same people indefinitely, right? And always have like no room in your calendar because you, you know. So there's there's some oddities to Seattle like that. I think that's changed a lot. Actually, it's one of those things you talk about people moving to the city. I think to some extent that's flooded that out a little bit. And it's kind of nice to have people coming from elsewhere that's kind of loosened up. It was, it's odd. You know, I think our weather encourages that kind of behavior. People kind of internalize and it's easy to turn away. Whereas you get to places like Georgia or wherever and people are just, they're outside and they're running into each other. And I don't know what it is. You know, I used to describe the difference being like in Georgia, like someone would run you over with their car at the crosswalk. And then um, they'd stop and say, oh, Zach. Oh, I didn't know it was you. Hey, can you come to dinner tonight? <laughs> Right. Yeah, because I was going to say that Seattle, style, like the impression, yeah. yeah, the impression we have or had growing up in the north of the south was that, that it was everybody was super outgoing and super welcoming, Yeah, which is the opposite of what people say about Seattle, regardless of whether it's true or not. Right. Was that which so was that basically what you're describing? It if like, they if they recognize you. Right. Because that's the whole <laughs> car metaphor. If they don't know who you are, man, they'll just run you right over. It's the same thing. Like, you know, you don't you take your life in your hands when you cross at the crosswalk. Right. Like it, all of those kind of like social rules. There's a little bit less of that kind of glue that that happens. On the other hand, as soon as people kind of recognize you or identify you or sometimes even if they don't like identification can happen over like I'm at the grocery store. And I'm looking at a can of corn that I'm thinking about buying. And just random stranger X has no relationship to me in any meaningful way will walk up and say, oh, oh, um, I got that corn yesterday. And um, it really wasn't that good. But this brand is much better. <laughs> and I miss that, too. I really miss the way that people can just walk up to you yeah. Yeah. and feel like that's OK. I used to also describe it like in the South, um, if someone says something to you or looks at you, and then it's on you to respond. And if you don't respond, then people are like, oh, what's wrong with you? Because this person, you know, and in Seattle, it's kind of the opposite where you would speak to somebody and then they, you know, would look at you like, why are you talking to me? And it was like, so you, you, the burden is kind of that you would carry the conversation. Right. Yeah. yeah so then That's I a really just, interesting perspective. I retooled my stories and my way of conversation in order to engage people so that they didn't want to walk away. Right. So it was like, because it's so easy in the South, you grow up with like how easy that is. Yeah. So then I, I would I would uh, develop. So in the South, like you can draw a story on indefinitely and, and you can grip people and it can go on and go on. And then you get to a punchline. And oh, they're like they're so. And then you get into these like storytelling matches in the South where it's funny, like you, you'll tell a story and then someone else will tell a funnier story. And it becomes this kind of competition, but everybody wants it to be because they want to hear the funniest story. Right. Mm -hmm. In other areas, it's like they're like, why are you telling a funnier story than me? exactly right yeah and it, so that was an, an interesting one too so i like accelerated the pace of my stories i put a punchline earlier and then if i was in a particularly petulant mood i would indicate that were some more interesting things beyond that point in the story and then i wouldn't tell people that <laughs> Just hold it back. them hanging. Yeah. <laughs> and they would never ask you to tell more whereas in the south they'd be dying they'd just be dying they'd have to know so you mentioned uh, weather earlier. Did you get winter? Were you that far south that winter doesn't happen? No, no. There's definitely was like winter. Winter in Georgia had a lot of um, days that were similar to here. So there were definitely were cold days and there were rainy days. But the mix was different. And I would even say like, you know, well, the temperature was high. The average temperature was higher. Like when I was young, I remember, I don't, I remember that every, well, I don't know if I remember every year, but always in January, there'd be a week or two where the temperature would hit 60. 
and you would be outside in a short sleeve shirt. It'd be sunny and it would be warm. Every winter you would have this experience in January. And obviously that, you know, doesn't happen here. Yeah, it's, that's still happening. It's happening more and more actually. Yeah, but we don't get the sun. So we were just in Boston, yeah. for example, for Thanksgiving. And again, it's like you forget like in the east, like Boston's colder and it has weather. This way. It gets 50 inches of rain, which is more rain than we get here. But but the but the week we're in Boston, it, there's one day it hits like 62 degrees and it's sunny and there's no wind. And you're standing outside in a short sleeve shirt and you're like, oh, yeah. I can survive this. There's another day when it's really raining and it's like in the 40s and you're just like blowing wind. And so it's like the variation in the weather is a little more defined. Were you an outdoors person in Georgia? Uh, sort of, I guess. I mean, you grew up in a small town. You're an outdoors person. Like, there's just, like, there's nothing else to but do. But it's not, con- is it conspicuous? Here being an outdoors person is, I would, Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong, it's conspicuous if you are. You mean because you dress the part? Even you dress the part, not, you talk about it. It's, it's very cultural. You still it's look a cultural, like you could right. be at any moment. There's yeah. signifiers. Yeah. And you move here for that. I mean, ask yeah. people why they moved to Seattle. And they're like, I moved here because you can drive out of the city and you can be in nature. And that part is yeah. spectacular. I mean, have my older brother come to town for the summer so we could go camping because mm-hmm. he lives in D.C. And, you know, he thinks he knows camping. But but we are driving around the backside of Mount St. Helens yeah. and you're driving for an hour and you're not seeing anybody. Mm-hmm. And it's, yeah. it's, it's a, there's a remoteness that we have access to that other people just can't touch. Yeah. And that is spectacular. Yeah, so I did camping, and you know we we're in a small town, so there's creeks nearby. You know we we're getting into dirt clawed fights, and we were able to walk out across whatever vacant farm fields or whatever. It seemed like the woods, but it was probably some secondary growth forest, you know, some <laughs> wretched piece of landscape. But it, but we spent a lot of time out there. My mom um, was from rural Louisiana, and in rural Louisiana, everybody knew everybody, and kids were able to just roam wherever because wherever you went, fifteen miles away, someone knew who you were. And could and could oh, keep an crazy. eye. It was really wild. So yeah. my mom kind of had that in the back of her mind. So she allowed us to just leave the house. And and like when maybe I was eight, we would walk off. There was a river two miles away, and we just walked down the river and be there all day. My mom would pack us a lunch. We would disappear for ten hours, and then we would be out there. Who knows? I mean, sometimes we hunting season with guns. We'd be going whatever. You know, we <laughs> there we were out in the woods. So in that way, yeah, it was kind of an outdoors experience that way. It was fun. I definitely spent a lot of time in creeks. <laughs> Would you say um, here you found people more or less connected to the outdoors versus versus rural Georgia, rural Atlanta? Yeah, rural Atlanta, Athens, <laughs> yeah, um, suburban Georgia. It was not quite rural, I guess. You know, it's just different. You know, it's like there's that whole hunting mentality or that like engaging nature to get something back from it or I don't know what you want to call that. And there's so many more people like we definitely went and hiked parts of the Appalachian Trail, but you're always running into people and seeing people. And just your experience in nature is so wholly different. Like you know, the whole Olympic National Park is like inconceivable that you can just get on one side of that and you can spend three days hiking across it and basically not really run into anybody. Right. Yeah. So I don't even know how to say that. It's just, right, it's just a different sort of order of magnitude, really. Like you couldn't even be that kind of like nature person in Georgia. That's not even possible. And the mountains are lower. The highest point in Georgia is 5,000 feet. I mean, what is that? A small hill for us? Yeah. You know, it's nothing. It's not a mountain. No, it's nothing is what it is. <laughs> It's really unimpressive. <laughs> How long did it take you to start to feel it here when it got dark and when it got gray? Yeah. How long did that transformation take? Okay, so there was a day, and maybe it's you know it seemed maybe it's eight years ago now. And um, so the hardest so the hardest part about coming to Seattle was that I thought it would be um, the winter would be the toughest thing, but I bike all the time, so you're in the weather. And then I find if I get on the bike, I'm in the weather a little bit. 
and then it just doesn't seem quite as bad, and then I can survive it. Certainly the darkest days are now as the days get short, and we're we're looking down the barrel of the shotgun. I mean, it's going to be, could be eight months more. You know, we're, yeah. we're, we're stuck. But And I thought, well, that's going to kill me. But actually, I could survive that. It was when the first spring arrived, and there was no spring. So in the south, like, and then that weather begins to shift, and especially down in Georgia, it gets really, really nice, 75, 80 degrees, and things start to grow, and, and the the uh, the amount of flowers and, and things. Uh, same thing with, like, deciduous trees, like just being back in Boston for that, the, the, the leaves just go away and you're left with these gnarly skeletons of the maples and the oaks and they're really spectacular in the way that they are but they're very bleak i mean the landscape goes very bleak in the eastern deciduous forest right but we don't get that we have these nice trees and they just stay evergreen and and there's a lot more continuity with that but but when spring happens in the east especially in the south it's so glorious it's unbelievable and so then i was just waiting for it to happen here and it didn't happen and then it didn't happen it was still 50 degrees and it's raining and you're like oh when's it going to and then it's june and then it's actually it's january and you're like oh when are we going to get something good and then it's july and finally the weather gets up and then the humidity tank it just completely drops off and it's 75 degrees and that's what fall is in the south so it felt like going from kind of a quasi winter to fall. And I was like, wow, I missed spring and I missed the summer aspects. Because same thing in Georgia, it's miserable in the summer, but it's so hot and awful. You have these moments like um, it's the end of the day and and you can still heat is still like the heat waves are coming off the pavement. You're sitting at the Manhattan down there at the bar. You're mm -hmm. outside because it's still 85 degrees and you're drinking beer and you just feel good because you survived the day. It's 11 o'clock at night. Like you don't have that experience in Seattle ever. Right. So that pacing, I missed that. So it took a long time for that to kind of like reorient what that was like. But there was a day I can remember maybe six or eight years ago and I walked outside and it's the middle of January. And I'm like, oh, it's so bright today. <laughs> and then I'm like, What's happening? and then I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. It's not bright. But I was like, oh, I've gone native. Yeah. Interesting. Because <laughs> you could write. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. It's funny. I wonder if it's the sameness. Because what you're saying about the the bleak landscape on the east is totally true, yeah. which is ironic. When I my first visit here was in the middle of the winter. Mm. And I was coming from exactly what you described. Just dead skeletons of trees everywhere, nothing growing. Yeah. And here, middle of the winter, rainy and dark, but still green everywhere. Yeah. And it was novel at first. And now I'm really just starting to notice that that never, like it gets a certain level and just levels off and it's just never changes. Yeah. But we have plants that come out. And so again, there's like more subtle. And so you just have to pay closer attention to it. Right. I mean, like on the landscape design side, like in the South or in the East or wherever it is that there's more deciduous vegetation around in nature, people are more okay with that in a planting bed. Oh, it could kind of go fallow and it can just be empty, especially in snow climates. So I guess snow is going to cover thing anyway. Mm -hmm. And so you can have something that doesn't have to be green all the time and it's covered with snow. And then the spring people are, and especially because there's so much floral quality in the spring, people kind of, you know, they want that from whatever design that is that you might do. And here, like having a bare spot there, people are just not down with it. <laughs> right. Because it's possible for us to have some things be green all the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and oftentimes you find that they're willing to sacrifice some element of floral quality to maintain continuous green throughout the year, yeah. which is interesting. And again, you know, we just have like this, we can have this long winter that has a lot more, sim is a lot more sameness to it in terms of every day being similar to the one before. And then we get this 
fantastic summer. I mean, it's never too hot. It's just totally awesome. It may only be a week long, but you know, sometimes we could get three months of it if we're really lucky and we hit the jackpot. <laughs> but you touched on, yeah, touched on something interesting. There is this awareness of landscape design that mm -hmm. seems to be on the rise, which is great. Yeah. People are taking more control of their landscape and not thinking about this precious little piece of, of forest that I'm not going to touch. It's not, it's actually your lawn. Somebody built it in the 40s or something like yeah. uh, and that in combination with the huge influx of people mm -hmm. coming from a bunch of different places is leading to some interesting possibilities um, and all the reasons I was curious especially from coming to the south we've talked to a, a bunch of people on the podcast from all different parts of the country and everybody has a slightly different sense of what their outdoor spaces should feel like especially urban mm -hmm. outdoor spaces and you know, there's a lot of talk about capping the highway, mm. doing more designed urban parks. Right. Do you think it's that's where the focus is going to be? Is is a park that's going to be the most mood affecting in the during the gray eight months, or is it going to be mm. more about summer activity? What do you think the focus should be? What do you think it will be? Yeah, so a lot of good questions there. I mean, I think the cap on the highway. We'll see if it happens. I mean, that's a real trick, just because um, it's so expensive, but also because the highway itself always is is creates enough pollution that by the real rules that we may or may not enforce anymore, um, it's it should be controlled, right? So especially during rush hour, so much air pollutants coming off of it. And as soon as you cap it, then you've collected those pollutants and you have to discharge them, and it becomes a point source pollution. You have to treat it. So that's mm. that's one of the issues with the tunnel. That they, mm. like one of the really expensive aspects of it is that they have to ventilate that tunnel and they have to control that pollution. They have to deal with the pollution. So it's on like well, the park is like sounds simple, but as soon as you like make that tunnel big enough that you're capturing this pollution, and you have to process it and vent it up into the atmosphere. You do all these things to it, and it's like that starts to run up the cost a lot. Other than the cost. Of like just capping it in the first place. It's crazy. Which is ironic because it's the same exact amount of pollution we're putting in the air right now. It, exactly. It's just the right? direction, right? It's just who owns the pollution, <laughs> right? If you're on the highway, it's the open air. Like right. every, we all own it together. Yeah. But as soon as you like, as soon as the Department of Transportation kind of like collects it, then they own it and they have to do something with it. So we might actually do something with it, right? I mean, and say if that ended up happening... They would have to if you were to like create. Well, it's always like one of those things. I'm always interested, like on the engineering side, like what is what is enough of you know you go under a bridge. What is it? It's like a short tunnel, right? Or a tunnel is like a long bridge. So it's like where do you cross the line where suddenly you oh now we have to collect this stuff. We have to you know do with fire controls, all sorts of weird things they have to do like in the tunnel that you don't do under a normal highway overpass. That makes it so much cheaper. So I think the same thing with a park. If it was like a really narrow bridge, eh, fine. You know, they'd probably get that. But if you start to like bridge over significant chunks, it was certainly great that we did the lid that we did on I-5 back in the day before we had to worry about these things because there it is. It's done and we don't have to do anything about it. It's getting more and more popular in a bunch of cities now, and there's a bunch of new projects. I know yes. back on the East Coast, everybody's trying to cap everything. Yes, they are. I had no, and it's funny, that's the first time I've heard somebody talking about redirecting the pollution. Interesting. I've been to the one in Dallas, and I didn't know what it was like before, and so I actually had, I had no concept of of before and after. I was just like, oh, look at this plaza and all these food trucks. This is great, and right. it's it's weird when you don't when you don't have the context for it because then it's harder. I think a lot of the problem is selling it appropriately to people. Yeah, somewhat, but it's still super expensive. So you always have to weigh like, what else could we buy with those money mm -hmm. that we're you know. Tunnel is going to be a very expensive endeavor. But this, you know, you know it's actually touches on something we were talking about right before the show, though. Yeah. The value of landscape design. Yeah. People get really excited about a big park. 
like, oh, capping the highway, looking at trees instead of looking at cars. Right. But had the value of a small touch of green, the value of a thought of thoughtful, yeah, a thoughtful park. Ver- what is that? Do people under really understand that? Um, I feel like people yeah. get it. Giant urban park, totally get it. I can go there and have a picnic with my kids. Yeah. But if say you cut that into like a ten percent of that, or five percent of that, or just a tiny little part of a street corner, yeah, uh, when do you start to lose people? Yeah. And you like, may not have the answer to this. Or the functionality curious. of it, or something. Right. When do you start to lose support? Yeah. When do you, when do people start to just grow in and be like, well, that's not going to make me feel any better about. Yeah, or it becomes like one of these like little monument plazas where there's something, there was some conflict or war, and it's like, oh, there's like the 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 thing there, but no one ever goes there. And it's, yeah, Seattle Parks has some of those. They're all around the city. There's little tiny little areas that they have inherited. And you're like, well, no one hangs out there, does anything, right? And you have that whole gradient from there to like the massive, like, you know, parks. We have Cal Anderson or you know, Discovery Park where massive amount of land. Do you think there's a limit to how how small you can get before it becomes ineffective? Yeah, or can you, if you no. even took this tiny little, what, three by four table and you... That was the footprint. You could do something that would you could totally be do something, amazing yeah. to sit next to. I think you could do, well, amazing might be a stretch, but <laughs> certainly for like maybe one person, you know, I mean, a couple of thoughts there are just like, um, it's all about, it can be about activation and proximity to other activity, right? Because any park where the people use it, then it's a success. And any park that people don't use it, well, I mean, I don't know. Is it a success? I mean, I always think to myself, like, there was a time we were down in, in near Ventura and we were biking along a trail from Ojai to Ventura and we were biking by some scrappy piece of land and there was something there. It was made out of stone. It had this rod on it and we didn't know what it was, but it, it just looked like a kind of a wasteland. And, we, and I was like, oh, you know, that place, that's, you know, terrible. And then on the way back, turns out it's a, it's a, it's a spit for roasting pigs. Okay. And, and on the way back, like there's like a multi-generational family there. Okay. There's like 50 people there and they're roasting a pig. And you're like, wow, that's the most successful public space I've seen in a long time. <laughs> and so that became in the back of my mind. Like, if you make a space and people come out there and roast a pig or have some, like, significant event there, they get married there, whatever it is. Like, people, that's where that's where that mean, you know, that's where it comes from. That's where just people imbue that with meaning by their presence or by the, the history or the activities. That's why it's hard to like take down houses. Like someone grew up there, you know, it's always a challenge. So you see a house and that's what you think about my childhood, the house I grew up in. And you take the meaning from that and you cross it over onto a house. So, oh, we're going to take these houses down and make a park. Maybe that's okay. But it's again, there's this like residual, whatever it is in your brain about that, that you want to hold on to. So yeah, you could have a tiny space, a park that's a really good example mm-hmm. where you have a small space, but now you've got expanded space for people to eat or do other stuff. And it's great. And it's like, well, it could be a car park there. That's a dead zone. But instead, you have people there. So, yeah, it definitely is better. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's no doubt that there are places where you could have a tiny little space, four feet by six feet, and it could make a huge difference in the, you know, again, like, are you enhancing the amount of activity it happens there? Great. Yeah, you're definitely making a difference. Does it need to have green? I mean, oftentimes it's nice, but again, maybe it's not necessary. Mm -hmm. Seattle has more like single family zoning than any other, I think, than any other city in the country. We actually actually have a lot of land. I mean, it's divided up into private kind of parcels, but we're not nearly as urban as other places in that respect. We're losing more tree cover. So we, again, it's like Emerald City. We have the history. We had a lot more trees. We're losing the trees, but we also have a lot of low-intensity land use. How much do you think you need to do to program a, a space? How much green do you need to add? And what is it 
do you think is the key? Like making a mm. park, for example, a small one, uh, you know, the yeah. size of a couple of parking spots beyond just putting grass down there. What's the, what's the trick? What's the key to make, to programming it? If you yeah. don't have this event is going to happen here each week, if you don't right. have a schedule. So the park we're working on now, for example, right? So we did public process. And again, like public process is a very, it's a very tricky kind of animal because, you know, we're all very suggestible. Very generous. Way to but we're it. also very suggestible. So the things that you bring to the meeting sets the tone for decisions that people will make. So you have to be very cautious or careful to curate that information because really, if your goal is to provide like the best park for the neighborhood, one, you have to be open-minded because you don't know what the neighborhood's going to do or how they're going to take it or where they're going to run with it. And again, like, you know, you're a designer and you think, oh, these are, this is the kind of design I like. And then in certain sense, it's like, well, does that matter in a small park? I mean, it kind of matters on a big park. Oh, we got the waterfront. Yeah, okay, that's got to be a thing. It's going to represent our city. People are going to look at that internationally. But this park we're working on in Lake City, I mean, does that matter up there that we, like, force design on these people? To me, I'm, I'm thinking maybe not. <laughs> right. right. So one thing, you can kind of shed that. And then the next thing is, yeah, you you have to like sort of choose pictures of like what you think people may want. People are always, uh, well, not always, but you know, it's it's almost a home run every time to show grass. People are very attracted to that, right? It's just yeah, kind of a thing, funny, right? That people, they want that. It's like it's a green, soft surface that they can use for things. So, I mean, I don't know exactly why they want grass, but in my mind, I'm thinking like you envision yourself onto the grass. Oh, we're having a picnic. Oh, it's a sunny day. Finally, it's July 4th. You know. Oh, grass here we like are. A, we can be here. A way to sit down without furniture, right? You don't yeah. think about sitting on a shrub. Hopefully not. Right? Something <laughs> yeah. Another aspect of like, uh, and design too, is like, there's, it's nice to show up to a client, especially if you don't know exactly what they want. And there's this ambiguity in the words you use, in the kind of images you show, in the design you show. And then you're kind of like waiting to hear you know, and because people will begin to inhabit that ambiguity and they'll start to tell you things about, oh, I see my, you know, if it, some of the meetings I've been at where like we actually designed on structure amenity spaces that worked out really well. We had this meeting, we're talking to the primary clients, but they had pulled in two other people who had experience managing multifamily projects. And, and, and as we're talking about one thing over in the corner, these other two people are actually talking about how they would sit in this one spot and be drinking wine together next to the fire pit. You're like, <laughs> oh, Right. Yes, See, that's yeah. right. And it's again, you're like, oh, we succeeded because this person is now imagining themselves into this space. They want to be there. Yeah. Such a parallel between interiors, just the way you're talking about it. Like when we're when we're designing a home or something, yeah. people are like this is how I want my living room to be. I want my bathroom to be this big. I want this type of shower interiors. And it seems like landscape, it's all feelings. Yeah. This is how I want to feel, yeah. which is a much more vague point of departure. Yeah. Uh, it's really interesting. I, it's. And very, it makes it very, very difficult similar. to sort of, so again, like when you do public process on a park, because you're mm -hmm. trying to program it or, you know, decide how much green to apply to it or other things. You're like, so that's the kind of feedback you get. And it's kind of emotional and there's a lot of, things. but you need to, in a sense, quantify it and say, oh, so many people voted for this, or you have to make sense of it in a way. So you can return back to the community and say, this is what we heard. So again, there's like an interpretive lens you have to pull it through in order to turn it into like information. So that people can then accept that you've done enough process to build the park. Because there's always people who show up later and they're like, I wanted this, I wanted X, I wanted Y. You didn't ask me because, but they, you know, again, you can't reach everybody, but you have to like make sense of it enough that you can provide this park. In that particular case, um, on this park we're working on, we actually had a request for a lot of different program elements. Uh, you know, the green lawn, a play area, a pea patch, and a basketball court. 
And we're like, wow, the park is very small. I mean, it's not big enough for all those things. I mean, it's, it's bigger than the kind of like small, tiny park you're talking about, but it's 10,000 square feet. Right. And so we, part of what we did on the second round of public process was we tried to return to the community and say, here's an option where we took two of the three items. Here's an option where we took these other two things. And we paired up different things to try to tease out, like, which ones do you care most about? And turned out all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so that we just jam-packed it in. Again, we're like, well, you know, it would be nice to have this park have a little bit of breathing space in it but honestly the people of lake city this is what they want right so then that's what that's my response you know that's our responsibility we're gonna you know let's give them what they want we so, want the park to be successful so when you are designing uh for inside yeah you know sometimes there's elements like green walls or water features or other things that are starting to become more requested and more popular for public buildings private buildings yeah how does size come into play there how does how do you get from well I like a couple potted plants to you know I want a green roof or a green wall or a water feature and right. how much how much does that change a person's wellness or their lifestyle does it have mm. to be big can it be something tiny it can certainly be something tiny yeah. yeah I mean and again that just comes back to like what do people like you know mm. some people they like all their walls to be white right and then but that doesn't work for me. You know, so I walk into my house and my walls have to be colored and they have to be like kind of vivid somewhat. Right. right? And then I'm happy, you know. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely is kind of teasing out like at an, especially in someone's house. You know, it's like it's it's been interesting to come here and work more at that level of single family. Right. Because like you saw the park. Right. We're trying to find this commonality. We're going to definitely not satisfy everybody. You know, if you try to do that, there's just not there's no way to do it. But now you're in someone's house and you're like, well, we're going to satisfy all these people. Right, because all three of them, or two, or five, or whatever—it's not many people. But an but office could be several hundred. Uh, you know, the yeah. Amazon bubbles downtown. I haven't, you know. Yeah. Well, that would be much more in like the larger. Pro I guess I was just thinking about someone's home, right? Because you're, you're kind of coming, and it gets very—it gets super. It, yeah. it does. It gets super personal. I mean, maybe that person needs a lot of green. Then yeah, then that's the trick, like to find out like how much green does this person need. Yeah, it's funny connecting a couple things. Something you said earlier about. Um, People come or you came to Seattle already kind of loving the outdoors thing that goes on here. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, not all of them, but a lot of people who move to Seattle are already into that aspect of it. Yeah. But then they bring all of their uh, their interior comforts and they want to recreate that in their yeah. little their little bubble inside the park or next to the park. Or yeah. And I think that's where the interest, the more interesting crash of wants and needs, especially in terms of green elements is coming into play yeah i mean it's definitely people who show up here again like from the east or something and they're like oh i want to have well i think it's probably it's more sharp division between people who come from further south because you know if you came from southern california i mean you can grow most anything that you want if you just pour water on the ground if you come from Florida, <laughs> everything just grows there. Right. You know, it's just like unavoidable that you can just whatever the things that we think of as indoor plants, they just Wake grow. Up oranges right. in your backyard. Yeah, oh. yeah. There's all just right. things grow all over the place. <laughs> so sometimes there's like a, a some correction in terms of like ah, that's not going to work here. You know, and and there's there is kind of a like a lot of people come to Seattle, they have a vision of the mountains, they have the vision of the evergreen trees, and I think to some extent that informs like they're interested in having a landscape that looks like the Northwest because they came here to be in the Northwest, right. and so 
there are definitely people who recreate the desert Southwest in their yard here that, you know, totally, it's just like everywhere, you know, there's always somebody who's going, Oh, I'm going to do this crazy thing. And actually I'm kind of into it. I love it when someone shows up with their weird idiosyncrasy and they're like, I have to have this thing. And you're like, Oh, great. Now there's like the design challenges. How are we going to make that happen? You know, have some cactus outside in the Northwest. Like, is that even possible? We don't know. So it becomes, that becomes the challenge. But for a lot of people, it, it is, you know, they want it to be like feeling, you know, I'm in the Northwest. And certainly as you move into an area where the density tapers off, people want that to be expressed more strongly. Or on the roof deck or something. You know, again, we've definitely done some roof decks where it's like trying to express the Northwestness of it for people. So Rachel, what is it for people who grew up here? Is the relationship between outside and inside residentially? Is it more of that's out there and we're in here? Is it just the mudroom is the where it happens? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you found growing up, uh, even later in life, have you found people with greener interiors or is it less so among native Seattleites? Hmm. That's tricky. I my whole childhood we, we always had you know really extensive garden. My mom went wild and just did all these really beautiful things um you know she's kind of her own landscape architect in that way um not professionally i guess but looks awesome um but also it but indoors you know like in our place now we have i think we counted the other day it was something like 36 plants in our you know under 800 square foot yeah house or condo and it just i think that's probably because we were so used to having a yard and you know mm. you don't have a yard and so we we just like to bring it in and it's it's just they're not big plants all of them some of them mm-hmm. are quite small but um most of my friends when i was a kid they had a bunch of indoor plants too i think i never really sat down and analyzed if it was because i needed it to not go crazy in the darkness <laughs> or anything and incidentally they're all you know of course tropical type plants to be right. inside and so it's right. not it's not really the northwest aesthetic in that way but it's it is this i i go crazy when i don't have a lot of green around me right. like uh-huh. in the east coast back many years ago when we were um you know going on a let's go see the colleges trip mm-hmm. um it was i think it was like october or something and it, we learned this phrase that they called it they called it stick season because it's bef- like all the greenery is gone, but the snow isn't there yet. Oh, and so it's just, it's stick season. And, oh, it just depressed. Like, it, I was only there for a few days, and I just right. could not imagine that I would be living somewhere that had a stick season. I just couldn't. And it's so, brutal. Yeah. It's just, oh, it looks, I mean, everything go, just looks so dire. Yeah. I mean, I go back to Georgia now, or, or like being in Boston, you're just like, oh, it's bleak. Yeah. Sucks. It, it, it sucks. Yeah. But, it, but it's windy and yeah. cold and it hurts. Yeah, but we have <laughs> wind and rain. Yeah. It just don't quite get as cold. But yeah. I, I can be okay with like a winter wonderland of snow and all and we don't yeah. really get that here. Yeah. But right. but yeah, I think there's a I, I I guess what I'm getting around to is yes, I am absolutely completely dependent on having <laughs> green plants inside my house. It's interesting <laughs> though, I wonder because right. are people coming from elsewhere coming here? still evolving their relationship with the landscape. And I wonder if that's why more design, at least psychologically, they think more design is required. Because it's like they don't know how to control it. They haven't previously invited into their life Mm -hmm. or it hasn't 
been their opportunity to do that. And then they get out here and I wonder if they think, oh man, I better bring in experts. We better figure out how to do this right. Right. Whereas, because it seems like the way, uh, Rachel, you were describing it is, oh yeah, we just bought a bunch of plants. We brought them in our house. Some people, especially in the East coming from an urban area, they'd be like, well, I don't know which plants to get or got to take care of them. I mean, I guess we have a green thumb and just kind of grew up that way. But But yeah, yeah. we, you know, we, well, you have a, like a much older urban culture in some of the cities in the East. And some of those people are right. They're just like, eh, whatever. But also I think like, okay, so I think like your relationship to the landscape, I mean, unless you just don't pay any attention to where you are, you have no choice but to adapt to it or to somehow internalize it, right? What do they call that? Like the terror or whatever it is, you know, like you, you, it's the same thing. Like one day I wake up and I think it's bright in January, right? That just happens to you, right? You don't, <laughs> yeah. what choice do you have? You just been here too long, you know, and you or what you or you have to be completely oblivious to your surroundings. Right. And so, yeah, it's or or what? I don't know. I don't think you if you like either you have to internalize the Northwest and really accept and, and find some enjoyment to that or you can't survive. <laughs> That's what we all do. We're all just <laughs> right. internalized. Same thing happens elsewhere, right? You're down in Georgia and if you can't take the heat in the summer, you're doomed, right? So it's again, you have to like be able to you have yeah. to develop some relationship to it that you can deal with. Yeah, we're adaptable. But, you know, speaking to like maybe bringing green indoors, there definitely is more interest in it. I think part of that is also like there's better technology to do it. There's more people who have product. You know, it used to be if you're going to do that, like even eight years ago, you almost had to start inventing the system yourself. So we start talking to somebody about how you're going to like, oh, we're going to put a green wall in your house or in your building or wherever it is. They're like, "Uh, how's that going to work? Oh, we're going to invent that. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're like, ah, uh, hmm. Yeah. So that's never been done, and right. you don't know if it's gonna be successful. And oh no, now you can go find products, they're not cheap, but you can find things that have been done. And you're like, okay, so here's something that's been done. We have a green wall worked on on a project, it's like almost eight, nine years old now. And that's one of those ones where we wound up with like this really myriad group of houseplants on there, dry shade tropicals, and it's it's, it's not for everyone because it's, it's very heterogeneous, but I mean, it's, you know, it's grown 18 inches off the wall and it's just, it's crazy looking, but it's like being in the rainforest and people who are attracted to the rainforest walk into the room where that thing is and they're really attracted to it. Before we wrap up, I always kind of try to like to ask at the end what your dream project would be if you could, if you could do it. What's like the one thing if you could just put an exclamation point out there and do something really cool. Oh, wow. I don't know. I really like to work on complex projects that uh, where it's just like really, I mean, at a previous job, I worked on the San Diego Zoo and that was a huge project. It was this Africa rocks project. It was huge. It was huge. It was eight and a half acres, massively complex. There was so many moving parts and pieces. And I just felt like I was like right in the middle of all that, like sorting that out and making it happen. I'd never really worked on a zoo before or, or even had an interest in working on it. I have focus groups of the Savannah Animals. <laughs> Did they, the giraffes get to weigh in on yeah. what they wanted sort to see? Of. Because, because you had the, the big cat people. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then you had like the primate people. You had the whole herpetology insect group. It was it was it was interesting to see in the realm of that in that realm that people they were like they, I mean you you almost wanted to say like people looked like the animals that they were attracted to being the keeper of but they definitely had but but those animals like when you know them well like all of the large meat-eating cats they have a certain personality and it did attract certain personalities who wanted to work with them and so you had to sort that out 
Anyways, but I mean, I, I love that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I, I, it wouldn't necessarily have to do a big project, but things where you really are trying to solve something interesting. And, you know, and always like someone, again, like this is where kind of like people with their idiosyncrasies, you know, and they want to achieve some weird thing that they don't even know that it can be achieved. And then you come in and you like crack that nut for them and solve that problem and give them something that they want. And they didn't, you know, that to me is, so I don't know, like that, that could be like any project really. But when that moment happens where you felt like that you were there and you used your brain and it made the difference between giving something to somebody, I, it's always like brought me into design in the first place. That's cool. That's really awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, about out of time, but thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. Well, thanks for inviting me on. Anytime. So a little bit of housekeeping before we wrap up. Our next night school event does not have a date as of yet, but it'll be right around the corner. So please keep a lookout on our website for that. Uh, it'll be held here at Board and Vellum on 15th Avenue in Capitol Hill. And as always, please stop by anytime for a chat with us. We would love to have you. Thank you again, and we'll see you all in a few weeks. <laughs>